Nervous Habits. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits. I am currently sipping on a shot of espresso from my new Nespresso machine. Um, you heard it here first. Ricky Rosen, the self-proclaimed king of the Keurig, who averaged four or five Keurig cups, K-cups of coffee a day. I'm now taking the, the Nespresso for a whirl. Um, my buddy gifted me an old Nespresso machine that he no longer um, needed after I helped him move into his apartment. Uh, as, a, as an aside, that's a really good incentive for you guys who are looking to move. Um, if you want to get your friends to help you, aside from like buying them pizza and beer, um, giving them some, some of their old stuff is, is a great, great impetus. So he, get, he gave me this Nespresso machine that he no longer needs. I have this Roomba, um, which by the way, the Roomba, the Roomba has been a godsend uh, just because my puppy Penny sheds so much. That the Roomba is amazing, you know. You, uh, it's it's for people don't, that don't know. It's this like robotic uh, vacuum that looks like a frisbee, and it rolls around, you know, the apartment, um, uh, vacuuming up all of all of Penny's dog hair. And uh, she, it actually, believe it or not, it actually also entertains her. You've probably seen videos of uh, of dogs, you know, barking at Roombas. For Penny, she kind of just watches it and, and follows it around the apartment. So it, you know, kills two birds with one stone. It cleans my apartment. Also entertains Penny because she can, um, you know, watch the Roomba while I do other things. But anyway, so I'm trying the Nespresso, and it's very different than a regular cup of coffee because a regular cup of coffee you can sip while you do work. It's you know sweet and tasty. This is kind of bitter. You just take a shot and it gets the job done. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I'm I'm sort of doing both, uh, but kind of on the topic of you know, of, uh, of, of beverages, I want to know you guys, what have you eaten today? Okay. Maybe you're, you're listening to this podcast as you're chowing down lunch or dinner, or maybe you're, you're cooking as you listen to this podcast, but I want to know what have you eaten today? Um, and it's one of my favorite questions to ask friends and loved ones, because I think you can learn a lot about their, you know, daily routine and their likes and dislikes based on what they eat habitually. And I promise there's a reason why I'm asking this that it ties into today's episode. But today I had, let's see, I had a bowl of cereal. Um, I think it was honey bunches of oats with some milk and some blueberries and a cup of coffee. It's usually my breakfast. And then um, for lunch, I had a turkey sandwich on a sandwich thin with some Swiss cheese, spinach, fried onions, and... Um, ranch dressing with a side of veggie chips, not super healthy, um, but it was quick and, and easy. And I'll probably heat up some gnocchi pasta with impossible sausage for dinner with some roasted veggie, uh, some roasted veggies. I'm trying to cut back on meat following my conversation last week with Stefanos Axios on climate change um, and how eating less meat uh, can, you know, help, help combat that. But the reason why I bring this up, this week I'm delighted to uh, have a guest on to discuss food and nutrition. And this is something that I don't get uh, you know, the chance to talk about a lot on the pod, um, but I'm super interested in the topic. I, 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 you know, I binge nutrition books pretty regularly, <laughs> pun intended. Um, and what's unique about this conversation is it's not just about dieting and, and weight loss, which is like what most... Um, I think nutrition conversations are geared around. It's about the evolution of taste, right? Like how uh, how do we taste things as humans versus other animals, and and what you know why did we evolve to be that way? Why we crave food neurochemically? Um, whether other species can taste food uh, with the precision that we can, and we also talk about uh, vitamins and why vitamins in our food uh, is actually a kind of a, a bad thing. 
um, and artificial sweeteners and fat replacers and the impact that that has on our bodies. We talk about calorie counting and whether it's actually practical to um, you know stare at the menu item and, and uh, count backwards from 2,000 to 2,500 to see if you've met your limit for the day. And of course, we do talk about obesity and dieting and weight loss and uh, you know h- how exactly people can gain or, or lose weight. Um, and one of the most interesting concepts that we talk about uh, which you'll hear a lot about in the episode is nutritive mismatch. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't want to give that away, but how that basically answers the question of why in America we struggle so much uh, as a society to stay collectively at a healthy weight relative to countries like Italy um, and in the Mediterranean that are comparatively healthier. So it's a really wide ranging conversation. Um, it's like eighty or ninety minutes long. Uh, I don't think I cut any of it, which which is rare, but there were just so many incredibly interesting uh, factoids and anecdotes that my guest, uh, Mark, shares. I'm really excited to get to it in a minute. Um, just a little bit about my guest, Mark Schatzker. So Mark Schatzker is the author of The End of Craving, Recovering the Lost Wisdom of Eating Well, and also the author of The Dorito Effect and Steak. He's a writer in residence at the Modern Diet and Physiology Research Center, which is affiliated with Yale University, and his writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Best American Travel Writing, and Annual Review of Psychology. I almost feel like this is my, uh, my, my Morpheus moment for all those Matrix fans out there. I'm presenting you with kind of a blue pill and a red pill. If you want to keep eating what you're eating, whether that's processed foods, re- refined flours, um, pastas, cereals, Anything, anything you could find in the supermarket, then take the blue pill. But if you want to learn about, you know, what exactly goes into the food we eat in America and why we just can't turn off our cravings for things like potato chips and Oreos, then take the red pill and come with me down this rabbit hole. Um, so following the conversation, I'm going to have a lot more to say, kind of reviewing some of the interesting takeaways from the conversation, like I always do. But without further ado, my conversation with Mark Schatzker. Mark Schatzker, welcome to Nervous Habits. Thank you for having me. So I got to tell you, I, I had one of those Arnold uh, sandwich thins for lunch today with with turkey and cheese and um, all the works on there. And I found myself reading the back of the ingredients for the Arnold sandwich thins uh, after after reading your book. Do you find yourself doing that after spending so much time in, in, entrenched in nutrition? I do. I find a lot of time. I mean, I try not to be one of those people who's totally, you know, paranoid and alienated by the food environment. But the more you know, um, you know, the more you want to know. Let's just put it that way. What uh, I'm, I'm curious, what, what percentage of people do you think actually bother to read the nutritional information on the back of processed food? Oh, I think a lot of people do, but I think they take, I think a well-intended approach. They look at the calories, they look at the sugar and things like this. And I think it, um, you know, we all have this idea that we can somehow count calories and, you know, people will compare packages and one says 250 calories and one says 275. So they go with the 250 thinking they've saved 25 calories, but it, it really doesn't work like that at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, the physiologists that spend careers studying this stuff cannot predict daily energy intake or expenditure. It's incredibly complex. So I'm not saying we should get rid of these things, but this idea that we can sort of account for calories um, as we sort of, you know, waltz our way through the supermarket is just totally false. 
Yeah, and that's that's one of many things that that I took away from your book, uh, The End of Craving. And something that I really appreciated about the book is that unlike I think a lot of people in the in the nutrition space, you don't necessarily blame food. Um, a, a lot of people squabble uh, over, as you said, calories or, or carbs or fats and what's responsible for obesity. But you actually argue that it's not food that's the problem, but it's us. So would you say this is like your central thesis for, uh, for the book? Yeah, I would. I say it boils down to it kind of we've for a long time assumed there's something wrong with food and that we need to fix food. And also that there's something wrong with us, that our own inclinations, our appetite is sort of like anarchic and dumb forged in the Stone Age. So we need to repress our impulses and, and you know, groom them with science. And none of this has worked. And I think it's contrary to our very nature. And we're getting it drastically wrong. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And the way that you illustrate that in the book is with the case study contrasting American rates of obesity with other countries like Italy. And of course, listeners know Italy is a country that's famous for its pastas and fried cheeses and fatty meats and rich desserts. And yet, as you show, Italians have significantly lower rates of obesity than Americans. So as a way of sort of framing the dilemma, you actually reject a number of possible explanations for this. The first one that you reject, Mark, is that Italians somehow have more self-discipline than Americans. So why is this not the case? Well, I just don't think it looks that way. For, for one thing, their food is better. I mean, how, do you, how can you say one country's food is better than another? If you look at things like um, you know, customer or consumer research and where people want to travel to eat, you know, Italy is number one. Um, Italians are incredibly passionate about food. Northern Italy is particularly interesting because they don't eat a, a Mediterranean diet there. Like you said, fatty meat, uh, cheese, pasta, fat and carbs, the stuff we think is going to kill you. Um, I spent a lot of time in Bologna, which that's where we get the word bologna. And their version of bologna is called mortadella. And it's got these cubes of white fat in it. So their food is better. Um, they, they actually have a, a repository of, of recipes in their chamber of commerce. So they're really food obsessed. The food is absolutely delicious. So if they're going to have more self-discipline, then it's gotta be like an outrageous amount of self-discipline because the food that they are somehow you know, willfully resisting is even better than our food. There is this stereotype, you know, that they they gesture and they're passionate. And sometimes stereotypes have more than a grain of truth to them. It's interesting if you look at this particular part of Italy, that's where near where they make Ferraris, where they make Maserati. They have um, the world's biggest um, maker of gelato machines is there. So they're really, uh, they don't seem like a, a nation of cold, pleasureless sort of rationalists. These are people who indulge in life and enjoy it, uh, as, you know, to the max. So I, I don't think uh, it comes down to self-control. People say it's portion control. I think their portions are, are smaller just because they don't want big portions, not because they're on some kind of universal diet. Okay. So you reject the idea that Italians somehow have, have more impulse control or discipline than Americans. Another thing that people like to say, Mark, another myth is that Italians and Mediterranean folks in general are slim because of their diet, uh, the so-called Mediterranean diet. So why isn't this the case? Yeah. Like I was saying, because that's just not what they eat in Northern Italy. Um, this is a Southern Italian thing where and again, I mean, pockets where people are eating something exclusively Mediterranean is pretty rare. But let's say the Southern Italian diet is closer to it. More olive oil, more fish, um, you know, more, more legumes, things like that. Interestingly, we see more obesity in the south of Italy, not less. Now, is that because of the Mediterranean diet? It's probably because of other things like poverty. But it's just to say that the Mediterranean diet isn't, isn't this kind of magic pill. And oddly enough, in Northern Italy, where they're eating pasta, cheese, you know, cured pork products, 
Um, these are foods that we think are really going to fatten you up quickly. And their rate of obesity is astonishing. It's less than 8%, which is, I mean, mind blowing. America, latest rates from the CDC, which are kind of out of date now because the pandemic has added even more weight uh, to our waistlines, 42% versus 8%. I mean, it's it kind of, you know, it's astonishing. Those are staggering numbers, Mark. And, 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 and the last sort of explanation that people have uh, potentially to justify this is heredity. You know, the idea that maybe Italians are trim because there's a, a thin gene relative to the Americas. Is there any, uh, you know, should any weight be allotted to that theory? No, none. Because um, oddly enough, when you take Italians out of Italy, they seem to have a propensity to put on weight. So uh, it's not as though they're genetically, um, you know, better built when it comes to resisting weight gain. Uh, in other environments, they, they perform just the same as other human beings. So it's not a genetic thing. So I, so I want to get back to the explanation later in the podcast, but there's something about what we do to our food that is different than what is done in countries like Denmark, Finland, Italy, and France. So I want, I want to come back to that. Uh, in the meantime, I want to shift to talking about hunger and appetite. This is something you devote a lot of the book to. So, so what is a person's uh, set point and how, how does that impact how we eat? Well, that's a great question. And let's talk about a different set point to start with, which is to say our temperature set point. We all know that we have a body temperature. We're, we're mammals, we're warm-blooded, and the body defends a set point, which is to say, you know, normal temperature. Um, and we know this because um, we experience it. Um, when we get cold, we crave warmth. So we'll put on a sweater, we'll shut the window, we'll grab another blanket and put on the bed. When we get hot, we crave coolness. So you turn on the air conditioner, you take off your shirt, you have a cold shower, you do something to bring your internal body temperature closer to, 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 to what is ideal. Now, this seems to make basic common sense, but this was actually this was actually kind of a radical discovery in the 1960s when it used to be thought that um, what we favored in terms of temperature just had to do with how far it was from skin temperature. So skin temperature was um, you know, like kind of around body temperature. And if water was like too uh, hotter than that, it would feel hot. And if it was colder than that, it would feel cold. And the guy who discovered this was wrong, his name was Michel Kabanak. Mm -hmm. And he, he, um, he studied um, the effect of temperature on bodies. And he just done an experiment on himself. And he was like really, really hot. And he had another uh, subject coming in to do an experiment. So he had to scrub out the bathtub where he did his experiment. So he likes, you know, pours all hot sorts of hot water, scrubs it down with bleach, and then he's rinsing with cold water. And he's sweaty and he's like dizzy, he's so hot. And he turns on the cold water and this cold gelid water just like flows over his hand and his wrist. And he thinks like, oh my gosh, that feels wonderful. And he had this epiphany because he's like, according to the textbooks, that's not supposed to feel wonderful. This water is too cold to feel good. And that insight led him to the discovery that ultimately what feels good is not the, the kind of the degree to which water temperature is out of sync with skin temperature, it's the degree with which our internal milieu, our internal temperature is deviating from the ideal. So if our internal temperature creeps up, we crave cold water. What feels good in the moment is what brings us closer to the ideal physiological state. It makes complete sense from an evolutionary point of view that we would crave and desire what brings us, what prolongs health. I mean, it, um, so then he started to think about eating and he thought, well, this is interesting because, you know, he'd always sort of, I mean, he's, you know, not, not a big guy, weighed around 150 pounds. He'd always weighed that much. He'd always eaten what he enjoyed. He never had any kind of particular problem with food. Um, 
And his body seemed to just naturally defend the set point. Sometimes he'd eat a lot, you know, during holidays and sometimes not so much, but not like he was on a diet. But then clearly it didn't work that way for other people. But it does seem it's contrary to the way we think about food, but the body does defend a set point just like it does with body temperature. And on the one hand, we ought to know this because the very fact that diets fail, uh, we bounce around from diet to diet, hoping that, you know, at last this, this miracle cure is going to work. And every couple of years, there's a new one. And if we look back in the history, we can just see it, it's kind of like hairstyles or boy bands. They just come in and out of fashion. And, you know, when they're 10 years in the rearview mirror, we kind of laugh at them. But in the moment, they just seem like such a great idea. Well, here's the fact about diets that nobody unfortunately knows is that they all work but only for about six or eight months, at which point they pretty much all fail. And what happens, it's not that we're weak or that we're stupid or that we just gave up. What happens is that the brain steps in and it's defending the set point. The brain says, I want you to weigh what you weighed before, enough of this weight loss. So we become hungry, we become tired, and eventually the pounds come back and it's very defeating. You know, it's just a very frustrating cycle that we're on. But here's what's so interesting is that the body also defends weighing too much. And this is shocking to people because they think, you know, left to my own devices, I, I'd weigh 500 pounds. But when, when scientists do overfeeding studies, they put subjects in labs and make them eat too much food. And these studies were so difficult to do because people hate it so much that the first study they did, they had to go and do it in a prison because they tried to do it with college students and I mean, forget it, they just dropped out. And even prisoners would drop out. And the ones that would stay in this, this um, being forced to eat too much food was absolutely awful. Most interestingly, they didn't seem to gain enough weight given how many calories they were consuming. But then once the experiment would end, they would snap back to their old weight, just like dieters snap back to their old weight. So the brain is defending something like a set point when it comes to our body weight, which is utterly contrary to everything we've been taught because we, you know, this whole idea of dieting and washing what you eat makes us think that what we eat is under executive control. Like I'm going to wear a blue shirt or a red shirt. And it's not, it's, it's, there are powers deep within us that exert a control over us that we don't have control over. And if we, if we want to, you know, figure out how it works, we need to understand it. And that was really one of the big projects of this book. You know, that it's so remarkable, as you say, and you note in the book, the brain doesn't just resist losing weight, it resists gaining weight for the reasons that you've described. And I feel like a lot of people listening are, you know, furiously shaking their heads saying, you know, if body weight wasn't an issue, they could just eat themselves into oblivion, consuming all manner of pizza, ice cream, fast food. But to your point, you know, it is difficult to put on a good deal of weight, especially in like a short amount of time. I don't know if you're a, a fan of the show. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. But I remember reading the actor uh, Rob McElhaney had to gain 60 pounds one season because he thought it would be funny if his character was, was suddenly fat. And he struggled gaining weight the healthy way using like chicken and rice and healthy foods. So he said that he would end up just eating four Krispy Kreme donuts every morning. And eventually he would just leave a container of ice cream out by the windowsill, wait for it to melt and just drank it every day. And even then he still struggled to, to put on pounds. So I think that's to your point that as difficult as it is to lo lose weight, sometimes it's even more difficult to gain weight, especially quickly. Well, even just thinking about it, it sounds unpleasant to have to drink like a, a, a pint of, of melted ice cream. I mean, to me, that just sounds like yuck. It's <laughs> 
It's, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's painful uh, for sure. You also talk in the book about um, semi starvation uh, ne- neurosis. So, what is this exactly? And is this, does this apply to anyone that's on a diet or, or only people who are, who are on severe prolonged diets? Well, this is something that was noticed early on in the 1950s was that people who would go on diets, it, it, it was kind of a total body experience. Um, uh, you know, their body temperature would go down. They would become absolutely consumed by thoughts of food. And, and um, what they noticed is that their reaction to being put on, on a, you know, a stark diet, is very similar, a slowdown in metabolic rate. Um, a preoccupation with food. What's so interesting though is that these people were not in danger of starving, but that is how the brain reacted. So it's as though it considers this higher set point ju- just as you know worthy of being guarded as what we would think of as a more healthy or just a lower body uh, body weight. And is this why some people on a diet? Um, struggle to actually lose lose weight because their body's in this semi-starvation neurosis. And when they do cons- uh, um, consume nutrients and calories, the body almost enters this sort of panic mode and immediately conserves, uh, conserves it and stores it as, as fat or, or... Yeah, they call, it, they call it persistent metabolic adaptation, but there's a couple important, important points. One important point is that as we lose weight, we have to cut down how much we're eating even more if we want to continue, because as the body gets smaller, it needs a lower amount of energy just, just to operate the same way a small car needs less gas than a large car. Um, so that's one difference. But, but then when they look at a lot of people, uh, I talked about America's biggest loser, they seem to require even less energy than would be necessary at that lower rate. So it's as though their body goes into economy mode. It's, it's really trying to be efficient. So that, that gives you a sense of just what an incredibly uphill battle it is. And the way that you describe it, if I'm following you correctly, is if, if people are fed more, then their resting metabolism goes up in a, in a sense to overcompensate for the new calories and their body has to kind of find a way to get rid of unwanted energy. You call this an overflow valve for unneeded calories. And does that contribute to, to the stagnation that happens when people are on a diet? Yeah, it's, it seems to be, yes, it, it, we become, you know, an ultra economy mode when we're on a diet and we become kind of, you know, prone to burning energy when we have too many calories entering the system. It was originally called luxus consumption, this idea that it, it's kind of like, um, you know, when you see like a, a, an oil refinery and there's that, that flame coming off the top of just somehow just burning extra calories. Another really interesting thing on this topic that I learned from your book, um, and, and I think I think listeners are going to be surprised to hear this, is that satiation, the feeling of, of being full, only happens if food is swallowed. So if you chew um, you know, a hamburger and you spit it out, the hunger persists. Uh, so, so, so again, I think that's going to come as a surprise to a lot of listeners. Can you sort of explain uh, the mechanics behind that and, and why that's the case? Yeah, and this was discovered initially by the same guy, Michel Kabanak, who did the temperature work, and he got interested in food, and, and he found, um, he found, you know, so I'll, I'll tell you how it started. He did this thing with toffees. He brought in his boss, and he said, I want you to fast yourself for 12 hours, and the guy comes in, he's hungry, and he gives him a toffee. He's like, how's the toffee? He's like, great. Gives him another one. How's the toffee? Great. Well, the toffees go like, great, 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 good, 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 indifferent, and over the course of the morning, toffees go from being great to being awful. Well, the toffees didn't change, right? These are the exact same toffees. They, they come off like an like a industrial plant. They're identical. Uh, what changed was the subject. His internal state went from in need of energy to no longer needing energy. So 
um, Michel Kamenek did other experiments and he, and he thought, well, is it just the flavor of toffee that just gets repetitive? So what he did was he made himself hungry and he would give himself a sip of, you know, he would fast himself. So he's in a state of, of requiring energy and he would give himself a sip of sugar water or he'd let himself smell this like um, orange flavored brandy kind of thing. And when he's in need of energy, the sugar water tastes great. The, the orange aroma is beguiling. Then he drinks some sugar water. And 20 minutes later, half an hour later, he tastes the sugar water. And all of a sudden, it's like the sugar water need is just, it's just the lights off. Doesn't taste good anymore. This orange aroma, no longer alluring. So his desires change as his internal state changes. Um, so then, okay, so he finds that, you know, once he's given himself this influx of energy, sugar water doesn't taste good anymore. The orange aroma is, is no longer beguiling. But then he thinks, well, is it just because of the taste or is there something deeper going on? So what he would do is he, he put the sugar water in his mouth and then spit it out. And when he did that, his desire for sugar water would not turn off. Um, it, so what this tells us is that we sense food at more than one point. We sense it as it's coming in, when we smell it, when we see it, when we taste it. But then there's this post-ingestive analysis that happens. And this is really important. The body analyzes food once it gets into the stomach, it gets into the digestive tract. So another really interesting way of understanding the importance of taste, and, and this is, I think, very important because we have a culture that thinks, you know, taste and flavor is sort of frivolous and disconnected from eating. There's that, you know, idea, if it tastes good, spit it out. Well, I, I recount the, a sad story of a little boy named Tom, nine years old. This was over a hundred years ago. He somehow uh, consumed clam chowder that was so hot it sealed his throat shut. He was unable to swallow food. So at this point, from a physiological point of view, putting food in his mouth is just totally useless because it can't get to his stomach. So you think he's gonna die, but doctors saved his life by creating an opening in his stomach called, called a fistula. And he would feed himself by just loading food directly in his stomach. And to some of that's almost like a dream, right? That is direct nutrition. Let's get rid of this monkey business of eating and taste, which gets us all into trouble. We can just load the nutrients right in the same way you load the trunk of your car. Well, they did this and this little boy continues. He's not thriving. He's not doing well at all. And they don't know what's going on. And, and one day he says, let me taste it first. So they give him the food, he puts it in his mouth and chews it, and then puts it in his stomach. And suddenly he thrives. Suddenly this brings him to good health. And this tells us how important it is that the brain get an early reading on food. You can't just load it in. The brain has to sense what's coming in so it can be properly digested and metabolized. And that's how he fed himself for the rest of his life. He would put the food in his mouth, chew it up, and spit it into a tube that was connected to this opening in his stomach. And he said, if he didn't do that, it's like he didn't eat. It's like the food went right through him. I'm glad you brought that up, Mark, because that was actually one of my favorite anecdotes that that you you mentioned from the book. Um, and I found myself reading about that. I went down a rabbit hole just reading about Tom and um, what we gleaned from from that experience at the um, end of the 19th century. I, I want to ask you another thing about taste, because this is this is another tidbit I think listeners will appreciate. Something else I learned from the book is that humans are one of the only animals who actually enjoy their food, who eat for for pleasure instead of necessity. So why aren't other animals capable of, of the degree of, of taste and of enjoyment as we are? Well, because it's not necessary. Um, and we have to look at this through an evolutionary lens and say, why do we have these things? And it seems almost cruel when you think, I use the example of a snake. 
There's no evidence that snakes are capable of enjoyment. They function kind of like your thermostat does. When they need something, the need light goes on. Let's say they're cold. We say a snake is basking on a rock and we think it's just sitting there going like, oh God, this feels so good. It's so warm. There's no evidence that they do that. It's more like when um, you know the thermostat goes on in your living room, let's say the temperature gets a little cool, a signal goes to the furnace, produce heat. The heat starts you know, producing, producing. When it gets up to the correct temperature, then the send heat light or the need light goes off. Well, that is kind of the, the model that we think snakes run on, but there's never this, if, if snakes could, could speak, they wouldn't have a word for enjoyment for, or ah, or wonderful. Um, that's not an experience that they can have. And, and it seems cruel. Why, why would a creator, if there is such a thing, ever create an animal incapable of enjoying its food? Incapable, because snakes don't need to, because snakes are very different than us. They are carnivores. Their strategy for getting what they need is to essentially eat a little version of themselves. That's not to say little snakes, but little animals. Because when we eat, we don't just need calories, we need vitamins and we need minerals. We need this very special package that will fill our needs. Well, the carnivore strategy seems really small. Just eat a, another living thing and you're going to get it all. So when you get that thing, there's no real need to taste it because it's all there. The quality is there. Humans are omnivores. So we have a very different way of navigating the food environment. We don't eat, we sometimes eat meat. We sometimes eat kind of smaller versions of ourselves, um, but we also eat a lot of plants, you know, vegetables, fruits, and these only have part of what we need. So it then becomes important that we sense what's coming in so we know what we're getting. So we know within an individual meal, I got some of this, I now need some of this. And this is why we sense food as we taste it. Because if we had to wait until it all got analyzed by the stomach, you'd have to wait 20, 30 minutes before you're like, oh, I think I need another couple more bites or I should go eat some of this. So, so the sense of taste is really important in terms of quality control because we need to know what we're getting as we eat it. And that mechanism, Mark, is, is actually what, what uh, you write leads to uh, obesity in a lot of ways. And, and, and we'll turn to that in a moment. But, but I also want to ask you, just comparing the, the taste function of animals and, and humans, you talk about how a lot of animals in some ways are smarter eaters than humans because their appetite is driven by simply physiological needs rather than a lust for calories. Uh, so, so what exactly did you mean by this? Well, this is what's called um, nutritional wisdom or the wisdom of the body. And this is the idea that um, the appetite's inclinations are in tune with what the body needs. Now, we feel that no such thing could possibly exist with humans because, you know, we need vitamins and we end up consuming empty calories and, you know, we, we overeat and so forth. Well, when we look at animals, do they have the same kind of, um, you know, stone age, uh, lust for calories. That's not what we see. So an interesting example I point out are goats in Olympia National Park. Now this is a national park in Washington state. And for, it, it didn't have goats up until a little over a century ago. And the reason was that it just gets way too much rain. It gets so much rain that it's just washing the minerals out, out of the soil and, and into the ocean. So when they eat the plants that are there, they're not, um, they're not sustaining. Well, hunters thought, you know, around a hundred years ago, this would be a wonderful place to shoot goats. Um, beautiful panoramic scenery. So they brought in goats. So you'd think, well, how could goats possibly survive if there's this absence of minerals? And what the goats learned, sounds odd, 
they could drink human urine. And, and that's how they would get the minerals that they need. And as it became a national park and it became popular with hikers, there's more and more urine around. Uh, and they would also do things like eat a sweaty shirt that's hanging on a clothesline outside someone's tent after they'd spent the day hiking. Well, the, the minerals that could be gained from consuming urine sustained a population of goats. So they learned that they could get the nutrients they need by drinking a substance, you know, we find disgusting, but this is nutritional wisdom. This is nutritional intelligence. They're not wildly consuming calories. They are consuming essential nutrients. Um, we see with mice, um, if you make them deficient in certain vitamins, they will eat their own excrement, which seems incredibly dumb. You know, how could the meal that didn't give you what you needed on the first, you know, round one, give it to you on round two, but it does because the um, microflora in their digestive tract, their microbiome can actually produce the vitamins that are lacking in the meal. So eating their own excrement actually delivers the needed vitamins. So, you know, they seem particularly intelligent. And of course we think we're nothing like that, but there's actually a great deal of evidence that humans have the same capacity. I talk about um, British sailors during the, you know, the era of the British empire, they would get scurvy, which we now know to be a deficiency of vitamin C. Back then they had no idea what it was. And the medical bigwigs had all these absurd theories. They thought scurvy was caused by an ill wind. You know, somehow an ill wind from the South could carry disease. They thought fog could cause it or the action of the waves. But what we find is that when we read things like the, the diary that the ship's chaplain would keep is that these, these very poorly educated sailors actually on some intuitive level knew exactly what they needed because the first symptom of scurvy wasn't the swelled gums that we read about in our history books. It was a desire for fruit and vegetables. That was the first sign of this terrible disease. And when they would finally make port, you know, there, I, there's this um, ship, it landed in Juan Fernandez Island, which is in the middle of the South Pacific. What do the sailors do? They scramble aboard um, uh, into land and they start eating moss they eat wild turnips. Um, I recount um, a, 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 a Spanish vessel in Mexico where they were dying of scurvy and this one sailor discovered this little fruit going, growing on a cactus. And he said it was of good taste. He just sliced half into his mouth and he starts coughing up blood. And it tasted so good that, you know, soon the whole ship is eating this funny little fruit and it cured everybody. So we do have this ability to not only eat what we need, but kind of adapt on the fly. We possess the same intelligence that our animal cousins do. And of course we do, because it's only been very recently that we had any idea what nutrition is. And somehow we survived all these hundreds of thousands of years by following our gut instincts and our gut instincts, our intuition, our desires led us to what we need. So many incredible factoids there, Mark. For people listening, if you haven't learned anything um, today, you already learned that if um, vitamins become scarce, rats and mice will eat their own feces and that goats <laughs> at Olympia, uh, Olympic National Park will drink human uh, urine. I'm curious if, uh, and I don't know if, if, you, if you know this, but um, <laughs> if humans were to attempt the same uh, sort of behavior as as their animal relatives, for example, um, in in conditions of vitamin scarcity, eating their own feces, th that probably wouldn't have uh, the same you know beneficial uh, outcome for humans. Psychologists in the seventies did research on coprophagia. That's eating your own excrement in people with extreme mental retardation, mm. um, because this is something that happens. And what he found is he he had people in these um, you know homes keep track of it. And he found if he gave them a nutritional supplement to their meal, 
the cases of coprophagy would go down, which is to suggest that perhaps it was being triggered because the meals they were eating were not nutritionally sustainable on some level. The reason I didn't include it is because the, the number of subjects was so low that it just lacked statistical power. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to be sure that the science in the book was really, you know, uh, up to scratch. But that's the only example I found where people looked at this in humans. And interestingly, it looks like they found something. And something tells me the IRB wouldn't necessarily approve, um, you know, form consent for, for experiments like that in 2022. Yeah, that's a good point as well. Um, so to me, the, the most interesting takeaway from the book is the discussion of, of nutritive uh, mismatch. That's something that I've been thinking about. I mentioned earlier, um, looking at ingredients of a processed food. So you begin that discussion by talking about the experiments done by Dana Small with the different uh, calorie drinks. Can you talk about what took place in those experiments and what we learned from them? Yes. So really interesting experiment. Dana Small, um, a, a neuroscientist at Yale University, and she began by asking, I think, an important question, which is, can we create drinks that are as rewarding to consume that deliver fewer calories? And a lot of us think, you know, wouldn't this be kind of like the Shangri-La? We can kind of have our, you know, have this, this rewarding drink, but fewer calories. The question is, how do you test that? And she came up with an ingenious way um, uh, you know, because normally the problem is if there's going to be fewer calories, like less sugar, it's going to be less sweet and so forth. So, so how can you test this? And what she did is she created five drinks that were all equally sweet. She used an artificial sweetener called maltodextrin. So they all tasted like they had about 75 calories worth of sugar. She then altered the caloric payload by using a tasteless um, starch called maltodextrin. So one drink had zero calories. Then I think it went to like 33, um, 75, 120, 148. So five drinks all taste equally sweet. They all have their distinctive flavor and they all pack a different nutritional payload. She gave these drinks to her, to her subjects. They drink them, their brains, like I told you how Michelle, Michelle Kabanak and the post-ingestive learning, mm -hmm. they get this opportunity so their brain understands what each drink is delivering. And then Dana Small puts them in the brain scanner and uh, squirts some of this drink in their mouth. And she wants to see which one gets the biggest brain response. Well, because humans require calories, she she thinks, she's guessing, it's going to be that 148 calorie drink that just gets the biggest uh, brain response because we like calories. Mm -hmm. Lo and behold, for some reason, it's the 75 calorie drink that gets the biggest brain response. And she's like, that's not right. It can't be right. She does the whole thing over again. It happens again. What's going on? She puts her subjects now into an indirect calorimeter. This is a device that measures the thermic effect of food. So when we consume calories, we start to you know, partition them, put them here, put them there. It takes energy to do that. And that um, energy can be measured as heat. So that's the thermic effect of food. This device, the indirect calorimeter measures that. One day a subject comes in, consumes the 75 calorie drink and right as you know, on target, there's this nice little plume of heat production. A few days later, the subject comes in, tries a 140 calorie drink, nothing. It's like, what? All the textbooks tell you that more calories equals more heat. What's going on? There's nothing happening. There's no metabolic response. And suddenly she has this insight, the number 75, because the 75 calorie drink got the biggest brain response. It's what got a thermic effect. And the drinks were all designed to taste as though they had 75 calories worth of sugar. So she finds the drink where the taste matches the calories everything runs smoothly, smoothly, the drink is metabolized as it is, it should be. But when suddenly these things don't match up anymore, it, things don't work. So this tells us once again, this faculty of taste of 
of your brain measuring food as it's coming in? Isn't this frivolous, you know, artifact of evolution that delights us, but in the modern age gets us into trouble? It's essential because the brain is getting an early read on the energy coming in. And it's important because the brain needs to know what to do with food. So this this is really interesting because it lets us see that when we start to monkey around with the sensory properties of food, and we do that all the time, this not only alters the way food is metabolized, we can even then start to ask an even deeper question, which is to say that um, if our brain is constantly learning and forming opinions, and, and that's how things like nutritional wisdom exist, what happens when these sensory signals start to become out of whack? This is a very new thing. Let's think about sweetness. Throughout the um, history of our species, um, you know, sweet things were scarce. Um, sweet fruit, you might have to climb a tree. There may be competition for it. There may be predators. But when you finally got that fruit, the sweetness, the story the sweetness told was accurate. The sweeter the fruit, the more calories it contained. Well, we have all sorts of technologies, artificial sweeteners, but also sugar alcohols, allosteric modifiers. These are technologies we employ to alter the sweet taste of food. And we do this because we think our, our taste, our appetite is you know, forged in the stone age and stupid so that we should fool it. But if it turns out that the brain is actually quite smart and not only does it measure food as it's coming in, it does this post-game analysis, maybe this isn't so smart. So we can say what happens when a cue, a Pavlovian cue that was certain becomes uncertain? Well, for a long time, scientists thought um, the strength of a cue had to do with how certain it was, but we discovered in the 1960s and 70s, that's actually not true. Uncertain cues have a very powerful motivating effect. Hmm. And there's a very good reason for it because when something that you need in nature is uncertain, you work extra hard to get it because we are programmed to avoid a loss because a loss means you lose and you could die. So millions and millions of years of evolution have baked in this response. It's, it's not even something we're aware of. Uncertainty just jumps us into action. It gets us interested in things. Um, the the uh, one way scientists have of, of call, what they call it is reward prediction error. When a reward the brain predicted does not arrive, this results in elevated motivation, a spike in dopamine, which is the brain neurotransmitter associated with desire. Very interestingly, this is what we see when we look at brain scans of people with obesity. The knock on people with obesity is that they, are, they indulge too much in pleasure, that they don't have the good sense to say enough is enough. Well, that's not what we see. If anything, their pleasure response is blunted. What we see is uh, an exaggerated motivational response to food. So this is more evidence that the problem with food is that it's ultra motivating. Well, how do we change? How did we do that? By altering the sensory um, properties of food. And I mentioned sweetness, but that's only one. I talk in the book about a whole family of food additives called fat replacers. And these are kind of like the artificial sweeteners of fat. They evoke the fatty richness of fat foods, but deliver fewer calories. And if the brain is stupid and is just on this mission to consume calories, that's probably a good idea. But if the brain is smart, this is going to have consequences. And what's so interesting about fat replacers compared to artificial sweeteners is that we, we really aren't aware of them. The, the industry has taken a very different approach. Artificial sweeteners have brands, they proudly announce themselves, you know, zero sugar this, NutraSweet equal. Fat replacers, they have brand names within the food industry. So they have names like Lycodex 
and simplest, these very cheesy corporate mon Less monikers. Fun. But you never see that on the ingredient panel. The, the one I mentioned called simplest was discovered um, in the 1980s by a scientist at a brewery who tried to convert whey, which is the, that liquid that's left over when you make cheese into a gel. Mm. And he got this styrofoam crumbly substance that tasted kind of like cheesecake or cottage cheese. Well, this is now, this is an additive put in foods called Simples. What's going on? It's a micro particulated protein, tiny, tiny little balls of protein that stimulate the, um, your trigeminal nerve in your mouth that creates, it evokes this rich fatty feeling. Well, you don't see uh, micro particulated protein in the ingredient panel, you don't see Simples. You'll see a term like milk protein or whey right. protein, which sounds, it sounds like it came from a farm. Accuous, um, yeah. There's one called cream fiber 7,000, which shows up in the ingredient panel as citrus fiber, which to me sounds healthy. Like it's, it's you know, good for your, your large intestine or something like that. Um, so that industry has been very crafty in, in, in sort of lurking in the shadows. But that's how we created all these lower calorie mayonnaises and salad dressings and ice creams. And it's gone to the point, it used to be that we just put these in diet things, like this, diet that. Now they're getting put in everything because we have this nutritional info panel and everybody's paranoid about calories. So companies are doing everything they can to lower the calorie count. So you'll find products that have fat replacers, they have artificial sweeteners. I wrote a whole book about artificial flavors and quote, natural flavors. Mm. So. When we talk about processed food, this I think is the key point. We've been fixated on fat and carbs for, for decades now. What has changed? The sensory properties of food. That's what we changed. We changed the way food tastes with technologies that are engineered to change the way food tastes. And a lot of them is just sort of incidental change. Things like emulsifiers, um, stabilizers. These also change the way food tastes. We do this because, you know, you want to put a... Uh, pasta sauce uh, on a shelf, you don't want it to separate. No one wants to buy chocolate milk that has separated. So a lot of these things are just done for the needs of processing, but it changes the sensory properties of food. And the sensory properties of food is how your brain understands food. So we've just really screwed up our brain's relationship with food and we've goaded it into wanting to eat too much. Yeah, Mark, there's there's a lot to unpack there. I, I want to uh, get back to um, what you mentioned about uncertainty and food labeling uh, in a moment, but just just to make sure listeners have some clarity on nutritive mismatch and obesity, this is what I'm hearing uh, hearing you say as a result of the Smalls experiments. You're not arguing that an excess in calories makes people obese. What you're arguing is, and th this sounds like a game changer to me, you're arguing that the mismatch between the sweeteners and the calories that's what leads people to obesity because it makes them feel uh, it doesn't make them feel satiated and they have to keep eating in order to achieve that. Is that correct? Yes, but I, I would, I, it's not just sweeteners though. Uh, it's the, it's the research on sweeteners that gives us this nice data, but right. there's so many aspects of, of the sensory aspects of food, artificial fats, fake flavors, that have changed the sensory properties of food. So, you know, I do believe in calories in, calories out, insofar as if you consume more calories than you need, you will gain weight. But the question we have to ask is, what would motivate this intelligent brain that has a set point to want to eat more? That's the central question. And it's, it's when we have this, this nutritive mismatch, when what we think we're getting doesn't match what we're getting that alters the brain's relationship with food, that mm. jolts it into an elevated, um, state of desire to eat. 
Got it. Got it. I, I think one one place where you see that, um, and I think listeners can recall, you know, if you've ever indulged in like a, a Coke Zero, for example, something that blew my mind is for so long, if you look at the back of a Coke Zero mark, it says zero calories, uh, zero sugar. Yet if you gave me a Coke Zero and blindfolded me and then gave me a regular Coke or Diet Coke, it would sound exactly the same. So Basically, what you're saying is the reason why Coke Zeros is, is able to uh, have zero on their packaging, zero sugars and zero calories is because the artificial sweeteners are being hidden. They're lingering in the background in these other things that are then um, affecting our, our, our sensory system in a different way. So it's not necessarily you know, beneficial for folks to be indulging in a Coke Zero compared to, to a regular Coke. Yeah. I'm not saying there's secretly calories in the Coke Zero. I'm saying what does that do to your brain that tastes it and thinks it's getting calories? And then like the, the rug is pulled out from beneath and it didn't get what it wanted. Mm -hmm. And this creates uncertainty. And it's a classic response. We see it in behavioral economics as well, that um, we are, it's, it, it's, it's very interesting. It, it's not gains that motivate, I mean, gains do motivate, it, motivate us, but the fear of a loss has a very powerful motivating factor and it makes us behave irrationally. Uh, there's an example um, we can take from gambling when when we see gamblers doubling down you mm -hmm. know gambler will be a uh, four thousand bucks in the hole on blackjack and you look at them objectively from the sidelines and say you need to walk out of the casino what do they do they go and pawn their watch or or sell their car do something really stupid um on and they put on a big bet why because they are in the domain of losses that is such a bitter horrible place to be they will do anything to get out and what is their one get out of jail card it's another bet that bet can get them out of the hole even though the odds are terrible even though the outcome will be awful in that moment that is their one you know life ring that can get them out of the storm of 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 losses which is so awful so mm. when we understand how we're motivated to avoid losses that helps us understand why uncertainty motivates us to eat more another example would be the relationship between poverty and obesity where you look from the from externally and you see why would someone who struggles to pay the monthly bills consume more food than they need not only are they spending too much money on food they're going to have excess medical bills i mean it just seems really like a really silly thing to do but what we see is that the uncertainty of not knowing where their next meal will come from that motivates them to consume extra calories so so we are motivated by uncertainty in ways that are invisible to us mm. and going back to the to the issue of uncertainty so you talk in the book about intermittent rewards like as you say gambling and slot machines and how that leads to higher dopamine responses and we don't have to get too much into that because i discussed um dopamine with a behavioral neuroscientist a couple episodes ago but you posit that the same uncertainty exists in the, in the context of food. So like in the example of uh, the Dana Small experiments, um, someone tastes a beverage and they don't know if it's going to provide them with 75 calories, 148 calories, or zero calories. So is this, is this why this uncertainty in other contexts, is this why people experience something of, of addiction to, um, to foods and, and potentially binging and other troubling behaviors that lead to obesity? It's, it's sort of fueled by this, this uncertainty that you write about? Yes, because when, again, when we look at the brain science, it's, they're not indulging in pleasure. It's, it's, we see this, this desire for food where, where we see their brains react is not, it's not upon the receipt of food. It's not when the food's in their mouth. It's when they see the picture of it, when they get the aroma of it, mm. Th then this desire awakens. And, and that makes it similar to addiction. I think we need to be really careful with addiction because I think it can inform some of 
of our experience of what's gone wrong with food, but we have to be careful. But we do see a similarity that um, addiction is not about getting high anymore. Um, for the addict, that you know, drugs long ago lost their ability to, to give them pleasure. Um, so we see the same thing with food is that it's, it's desire for calories. And I think that's also tells us what we see a lot in the food system are these, you know, or the food environment, some really, some foods that just like have crazy amounts of calories. Mm. And I think that's evidence that, um, th that these are being offered because people are responding to them because in this environment of uncertainty, when they can get something that actually delivers what they want, that's really valuable to them. You know, it's interesting. You talk in the book about how, how calorie counters have become uh, a fad and, and a new innovation and um, how the science is kind of mixed as to, you know, whether knowing how many calories are in each um, menu item lowers the amount that people eat. But I almost think from a policy perspective, putting up the number of calories can be misleading in the sense of something that has a lot of calories, Mark, might still be really bad for you because it contains these other um, fake fats or artificial ingredients or flavorings, whereas something that has fewer calories uh, or excuse me, or something that has more calories might actually be better than you. So it does seem like calorie counters don't necessarily tell the full, you know, the full story. No, they definitely don't. And the other thing is they don't, they don't seem to work. What the science seems to show is that at the individual moment, like if, if you look at a menu and you see the calorie numbers, that, that can actually get you to order something smaller, um, have a, have a you know, lower calorie meal, but people then tend to gain it back. They'll have a snack at night. Again, it's this brain kind of defending a set point. But the other thing too, that's interesting to think about about this whole idea of counting calories is um, the brain keeps track of things, but not on a day-to-day -day level. So when we look um, at data where scientists have, have really monitored what people eat and what they expend in any given day, it never matches up. It's always totally out of whack. And it just seems like this yo-yo roller coaster, you know, eat a lot one day, not much the next. Over time, it's amazing at how good the brain is at controlling body weight. Um, I talked about the study um, in the Beltsville study where they monitored whether there's this data from a single woman um, and they show her, um, you know, what she, um, what she ate and what she expended over the course of a year. And it's just all over the map. I mean, during the holidays, she's just having these insanely indulgent meals. But then there's these other days where she just doesn't seem to eat much. What I noticed for myself is that, you know, if you are going to play the calorie counting game, I think the thing you have to do is match that up to what kind of enjoyment and level of satisfaction you're getting from it. So the example I often use is if I'm stuck in an airport and I have a fast food meal, what I'm always amazed by is how quickly I eat it and how it's like I could do it again. Like I'm just not really satisfied by it. And, and it just goes through me so quickly, you know, five nights later, I'm back home. It's a Saturday night. I, I grill a steak with my wife. I I'll fry potatoes and duck fat and I'll make a Caesar salad and have more than one glass of red wine. That's a pretty indulgent meal. It takes us way, way longer to eat that meal. But then the most interesting thing is the next morning you'll have a really light breakfast. You're just not that hungry. Mm -hmm. So I think, we have to understand our relationship with food. We weren't designed to be calorie counters. We were designed to eat food and we were designed to respond to the sensory aspects of food. And we've done so much to just muddy that relationship. So we've talked about fat replacers. We've talked about artificial sweeteners. Um, perhaps the most controversial, the most surprising um, additive to our foods that you uh, posit might be inadvertently contributing to obesity 
is vitamins. Um, and you know, this, this in some way addresses the, the puzzle that we introduced at the beginning of the episode and that you, uh, talk about in your book of, uh, America versus the rest of the world, that vitamins being added to our food might be a contributing factor here. So, you know, th that is kind of counter counterintuitive Mark, because, you know, we're taking multivitamins, uh, it's bizarre. I mean, let's face it. It's yeah. totally wacko vitamins. Like what is this guy talking about? I'll be the first to say that I, I, you know, I took this very seriously because on the surface, we, there's been so many wacko, bizarre theories about uh, what's contributing to obesity that I didn't want to be yet another person coming up with something crazy. But I think the case is very strong. Yeah, for sure. And is it? And just to be clear, is it all vitamins, or is it just a subset? Vitamin B, vitamin C. It's the it's the, it's the B vitamins, the B vitamins that are involved in energy metabolism. And this is a big story, but I think it really tells us where things went wrong not only on a metabolic level, but on a cultural level. Mm -hmm. So I want to, I want to um, tell the story by, you know, turning the clock back more than a hundred years to a time when there was an epidemic. Well, we're facing two epidemics right now, COVID, but also obesity. Well, back then there was this epidemic of a disease called pellagra started hundreds of years ago in Italy. And pellagra means rough skin in a dialect of Italian. And that's how it started. Um, it usually started with a farmer, more likely a farmer's wife. Um, and it would start with like a skin scale and it may go away next year. There would be more and it would progress there. Poor people would be covered in these awful skin scales. They'd get terrible diarrhea. They'd lose their appetite. They would become uh, delirious, demented. They would eventually die. Um, and it was a horrible disease. And just like what's so similar, it's just like with obesity, there was this, you know, rotating cast of experts who all knew exactly what it was. And Boy, did they have some strange theories. They, some said it was spores that get into your skin, into your blood and burst into flame. Some said it had to do with how far you live from a river. If you're too close, that's good. If you're really far away, that's good. But there's this like Goldilocks zone where that's not good. Um, Jews never got pellagra. Divorcees didn't seem to get pellagra, but somehow being married made you more likely to get pellagra. Some people said it's, it's infectious. Some said it's being carried by insects. There was a sandfly club versus the mosquito club. There was just raging disagreement. Well, the mystery was solved by an epidemiologist named Joseph Goldberger, who theorized it had something to do with diet. And he came to the sanatorium in Georgia and he said, don't clean it up. Don't wash those dirty sheets. Don't mop the, the awful floors. And he changed what people ate. And they thought this guy's nuts. He's making people eat like milk, cheese, meat. He gives them nuts. The nutty doctor gave them nuts. And lo and behold, it works. Pelagra goes away. Nobody believed him. So he actually got a, a group of convicts. This is funny. And yet another study that was done in a prison. Mm -hmm. And he induced pelagra by giving them what was the kind of the, the poorest Southern diet of the day, which is um, grits, pork fat, and molasses. And he produced pelagra. And eventually he convinced everybody that the problem was diet. And this contributed to our understanding of food because we eventually understood pelagra was caused by a deficiency of niacin, what we call vitamin B3. And we understood that food isn't just sort of food in this abstract sense. Food has essential components that are necessary for the continuation of life. And if you don't get one of those components, you're going to die. Well, here's where things get really interesting is how do these two countries respond? America does what seems scientifically rational and sane. They say, if people need these vitamins and they're not getting them, let's just put them into food. So in the early 1940s, um, the American government passed laws encouraging, but essentially making law the addition, not only of niacin, but also thiamine and riboflavin and the mineral iron 
to first it was bread and then it went, made its way into kind of all the processed carbs you get it in, you know it's in breakfast cereal donuts rice grits it's in everything and it it had like an magical effect pelagra just ceased to exist it was gone it was such a beautiful marriage of cutting-edge science with public policy over in italy they took a totally different uh response one that seems almost funny they didn't start putting um you know, niacin and people's polenta, which is the Italian version of grits, which seems like the sensible thing to do. They said, um, poor people should raise rabbits because rabbits are a cheap and easy form of meat to raise. Mm. They said there should be communal bread ovens. So we can, you know, all bake bread as a community. Some people even said people with pelagra should drink wine, which is just like, are you kidding me? These people are dying of a nutritional disease and you say, yeah, vino. But well, here's what's interesting. The Italian approach also worked. Didn't work as quickly, but Italy literally ate its way out of a nutritional deficiency. Well, now you fast forward the clock more than a century and things could not be more different. The American South graduated from one nutritional disaster to another. The pellagra belt of a hundred years ago is now the obesity belt or the diabetes belt. And if you look at the South on its own, it's as though humans just can't win when it comes to food, that you're either gonna starve or eat yourself to death. But then you look at Northern Italy and this area that used to be um, you know, ravaged by pellagra is this kind of paradise now where they eat one of the most wonderful diets in the world. You know, People all over the planet fly to Italy. They, they get a ticket to Bologna so they can eat as the Italians eat. They just say, I wanna have what the locals are having. Their food is so delicious. And yet they have such a wonderful relationship with food. Like I said, the rate of obesity is less than 8%. So I think there's two things to look at here. The first is a cultural difference in how our two cultures look at food. Americans looking at pellagra concluded two things. The first is that food is imperfect, that food can lack what we need to live. So food needs to be fixed. And we fixed it initially with those vitamins. And the second is they looked at our appetite as being stupid and we don't know what's good for us. So we're going to go in and, and, uh, you know, fix what's wrong with food. And, and also, we also have had this longstanding attitude of mistrusting the pleasure of eating and mistrusting our urges. Italians saw it completely differently. To them, it was obvious that pellagra was a disease of poverty. Food wasn't the cause. Food was the cure. Mm -hmm. And what people needed was better access to food. Well, if you look over the centuries and you look at Italian food culture today, it is animated by a love of food, by an, a willing indul indulgence in it that we find almost frightening and alien. If you've ever seen an Italian cook, you know, the, this gob of butter they'll put in a pan before they cook something is almost like traumatic to a North American because we've been, you know, just coached to fear these things. Um, what I found so interesting, I went to a bean festival in Italy, a little town called Lamon that, that grows four types of a borlotti bean. And they, they will tell you this is the absolute best bean in the world. And I got there and I asked this guy, Enzo, selling beans, you know, how do I cook these things? And he's such a purist. He says, boil them and dress them in a neutral vegetable oil. So he didn't even want the flavor of olive oil to corrupt the purity of these beans. But then, you know, a woman steps in and says, you know, I'd, I'd include an onion when you boil it. And someone else says, you know, some garlic, sage. And once again, a, a, a discussion, a disagreement emerges. There's four different kinds of these beans. So then they start to get an argument, which is the best bean. I'm like, everywhere I go, people argue about food is the universal human condition, but there's a stark difference, which is that in Italy, the argument is what is the best recipe? And they argue passionately and this argument has resulted in such a wonderful food culture. 
in North America, what's the argument? It's about carbs. It's about calories. Mm -hmm. It's about fat. It's about insulin. As though we are all these, you know, eggheaded nutritionists with our white lab coats on that we know we have just perfect knowledge of all these scientific attributes about food. We know nothing about this stuff. It's, it's a joke that we carry on with this language. We have no clue what we're talking about. And meanwhile, we're so afraid of what the Italians are openly indulging in, which is the pleasure that food gives us. So if we look at, you know, the story begins with vitamins, but so many of these things I talked about, artificial sweeteners, fat replacers, that's us saying there's something wrong with food and there's something wrong with us and I'm going to fix it. Mm. That has never worked. And it's getting us further and further away from what does work, which is eating and enjoying real food. But now let's get back to these actual vitamins that I talked about, because I also asked the question, you know, is it possible that adding something that we consider vital, you know, that word is in vitamins, could have had some unintended consequence. And this is where things really begin to get interesting. And where I looked next was livestock nutrition, the story of pigs, because mm -hmm. pigs of all the animals we raise, pigs are the most like us. They're warm-blooded mammals that have one stomach, not like cows, that have a whole bunch. We don't ruminate like cows. And they're omnivores. They eat plants. They also eat animals. Mm -hmm. Well, let's look at pig farming in the 19, early 1950s. Um, the goal of the pig farmer back then was to get their pig big and fat quickly because the less time it spends on the farm, the cheaper it is to raise, the more margin you get, the more money you make. Mm -hmm. Well, farmers knew if you want to get your pig big and fat quickly, what do you feed them? Corn with some soy. But that's not all you can feed them because that's kind of like what those Southerners were eating, you know, uh, 50 years earlier. So they knew that if you want your pig to survive and not get a pig version of pellagra, you send it out to pasture where it, it eats things like alfalfa, a green mm -hmm. plant. And that's how it balances the diet. Well, in comes B vitamins and that changes everything. Um, there's this great study I found where they take a group of pigs and they give them this diet of corn and soy. And when that's all they get, they do terribly. They eat a ton of food. They get terrible diarrhea. They don't gain any weight. And then one by one, they start to add in these B vitamins and you see the growth curve just takes off. And this is what changed farming. We talk about confinement farming. We talk about commodity farming. This was all made possible by the discovery of B vitamins because it meant you don't need to send your pigs out to pasture. You don't have to cut that pasture and chop it and feed it to the pigs. You can give them this rocket fuel feed and dust in these B vitamins and the growth, it, it, I mean, it was matchless. And that, you know, pigs were rousted off pasture. That was, that was the old way of doing things. I found these pamphlets where they would say the pig has a reasonable ability to balance its diet, but there's a new way to get, quote, optimal weight gain. And what mm. is that? It's processed carbs with B vitamins. What is special about B vitamins? They are the energy metabolizing vitamins. This is important because humans are not like machines. If you want your car to run, you give it fuel. If you want your laptop to run, you plug it in, you give it fuel or energy. We can't just run on energy. Calories alone aren't enough. We need the B vitamins to metabolize that energy. And if you want to create a rocket fuel diet to maximum to optimal weight gain, you need dense calories. But if that's all you get, you get pellagra. So right. you also need to add in the B vitamins. So the recipe for getting pigs fat quickly is to give them a super high calorie diet with the B vitamins necessary to metabolize those calories. Well, we did the same thing to our diet unintentionally, thinking it was a good idea, but now we dump in these B vitamins with our processed carbs. And it started with enrichment. That's what it's called when the government does it. Mm -hmm. When companies do it, it's called fortification. It's the same thing. It's just dumping vitamins into stuff. And uh, you know, the United States is 
distinctive because it has voluntary fortification. So companies can just put this stuff in whenever they want. So we look at breakfast cereals that have insane amounts of vitamins. Um, there's no food in, in, in nature that can approximate this. There's vitamins in energy drinks. There's mm -hmm. vitamin water. We put it everywhere. So we know that on a like on a physiological basis, if you're going to consume and metabolize a high number, a, a lot of calories, you need a lot of B vitamins. And that is the environment that we have created. Mark, I, I want to go back to breakfast cereal for a moment, because this, I think, is illustrative of the point that you make about how people are consuming too much uh, niacin, for example. And you say that the average American consumes triple the amount of required niacin, essentially the equivalent of, uh, to that of a 550-pound man. And, and for me, I used to always think when I looked at the back of a cereal box and it said, you know, 200 to 300% daily value of vitamin B, thiamine, niacin, riboflavin. I used to think that was terrific. I'm getting two or three times more than I needed. But what I'm gleaning from the conversation is that sometimes getting too much of these vitamins, too much of a good thing might actually be counterproductive, might actually not only be preventing the vitamin from having a positive impact, but leading you down the road where you're eating too much. Is this why people should be wary of the 100, 200, 300% daily value on, on the nutritional label? Here's what's also interesting is there's this common idea that we're eating too many empty calories. Mm -hmm. Well, if that were true, we'd have pellagra if we were eating empty calories. So we must be getting these vitamins. So if you think of something like a soft drink, which really is empty, it's just this, like, the, this liquid caloric drink, we need to be getting the vitamins to metabolize those calories from somewhere. So I think where it gets most interesting is when we were talking about early on about the fact that we're omnivores, mm -hmm. we weren't designed to eat this way. We were designed to eat lots of different foods that have lots of different things in them. So when we create these, these artificial confections that are high calorie, but also high in vitamins, that's just a situation that didn't exist. We're, we're kind of we're kind of tweaking the diet in a way that produces maximum weight gain. Mm -hmm. So if you think of, for example, of an Italian, it's not impossible to get obese in Italy. Um, they, they're, they're, like I said, their rate of obesity is less than 8%, but there are people with obesity. You just have to work an awful lot harder to do it because it's just not as easy. You have to eat more foods. You have to get literally more food into your stomach to make that happen. You know, people often hear and uh, hear about in the nutritional world, it's better to get a vitamin like a vitamin C from the original source. So it's better to get a vi vitamin C from oranges, grapefruits, and tomatoes than from a pill, or is it only in the context of processed foods that it's better to get vitamin C um, from the food than uh, from the original source than have it, uh, you know, added into the uh, food during the production process? What, what would you say on that? I think generally speaking, eat food, eat real food. That's what we were designed to eat. Now, if a doctor has told you, for example, that for some reason you need vitamins, um, if you have a particular condition, um, you know, elderly people who live, um, you know, in institutions, like, like they don't get a lot of access to sunlight. So vitamin D might be important for them. So I'm not, I'm not saying we should ban vitamins, but I guess what, what I'm saying is this, I, this one, one stop fix it for everybody's solution is something that I'm skeptical of, especially with things that are involved in energy metabolism. I think there's a good case to be made for putting iodine and salt. I'm not against that. Mm. I think folic acid, I think there's a good case for, but some people um, think there may be um, unintended consequences to folic acid as well. It, it tells you just how complicated this stuff is. And I think the other thing that's important is we have this way of treating us all, um, you know, these policies to make it the same for everybody. We treat ourselves like machines, like we're all the same model of a car that came off this assembly line. And the truth is we're all different. There's different um, sexes, there's different ages. Um, 
a pregnant woman has different needs than a woman who's not pregnant. Mm -hmm. um, a child has different needs than an adult. And I think the diet has always been what, what could kind of pivot on the fly to match our, our needs, our internal needs. And the fact that we treat ourselves like, like machines and, and almost like we're so stupid that we need to intervene. I think that's the mistake that we made. Mm. Yeah, I, I think I think that is that is an interesting parallel, right? Like like not assuming that everyone, regardless of age or, or weight or background, um, you know, can consume the same thing, and it needs to be kind of tailored to your individual diet. Uh, so, Mark, I mean, you know, you've you've made a lot of um, staggering claims here today, and also in the book. And I think, I mean, I'm definitely convinced. I think listeners uh, are probably intrigued and and interested in learning more about these topics. But I guess, you know, to the person out there who's a little bit skeptical, why don't more people know about this? You know, honestly, I think if people knew that artificial sweeteners and fake fats were so dangerous, they'd probably, you know, there'd probably be a movement to either have them more heavily regulated or change the food uh, labeling process, or maybe stop consuming them altogether. So, you know, what do you have to say to people who are skeptical like that? Well, a lot of this is based on new science. Um, you know, the initial fear of our artificial sweeteners is that they cause cancer or that they were neurotoxic. And I don't think there's evidence that that's true. I think we have to look at the more subtly and, and, and have a more complex understanding of how appetite and how the brain forms a relationship to food. So this is, this is all new. Uh, th this is research that is quite young. It just, it's just, this is the beginning. What, what I'm hoping is that this changes the food conversation, that we, we get off this kind of... Um, this repetitive cycle of bouncing from diet to diet and start to understand how, how the brain understands food. So I would say to anyone who's skeptical, it's good to be skeptical. I think they should, um, you know, look at the science and, and look at themselves and, and the way that they react to food. And, and, you know, I guess I would say this, one of the most compelling pieces of evidence to me is if you look at our ability to taste food, uh, which we experience as, you know, flavor and taste, um, this ability to sense what's in food. If you look at your DNA, the instruction manual to make you, the thickest chapter is on your nutrient sensing ability, the faculty of taste and smell. Um, it's obviously very important. If it's tasting up, taking up that much DNA, it, it can't be frivolous and somehow disconnected to the important business of nutrition. This is how we were designed to consume nutrients. So we have to take off the kind of the scientific nutrient hat and eat food as it was meant to be eaten. And that means understanding how the brain relates to food. And I also think you alluded to earlier um, sort of the impact of capitalism and the economics of this whole process and why I know in the book you mentioned that um, in the journalistic process, you try to sort of, you know, talk to researchers in the field um, about you know, the, why people, uh, you know, why there wasn't a lot of data out there, uh, publications on fake fats and, and, you know, why this information wasn't more well-known and uh, people were, you know, more tight-lipped about it. So I wonder, because it's so profitable and you see this in, in other, uh, you know, in, in the nutritional space and other areas, um, right, with like industrial production of meats and, and produce and other processed foods, um, you know, you think about the business uh, of actually, you know, making these making these foods and how the bottom line dictates that maybe the status quo stays the way it is. And I wonder if, if that um, sort of makes you a little less hopeful about the prospects of the situation in America changing relative to countries like Italy. Well, 
all I can say is I hope we can turn things around. I think I think things will simultaneously go in both directions. You know, I think there have been certain positive changes. You, this will sound odd, but I look at something like craft beer as being a positive change um, because that's that's an industry that was producing a lot, awful lot of industrial kind of you know uninteresting beer. And what made a change was people's desire to to consume more interesting beers. They're, they're more nutritionally interesting, but what I just find interesting about them is it was driven by a desire to have more dynamic, interesting flavor experiences. And behind that, you th see things like tradition and you see the people behind it, the people that make the beers. So, so it's not this sort of industrial product. Um, there's more of a culture happening. I think we see that with cheese. I think people are caring mm. about things like pastured pork again, grass-fed beef, grass-fed milk, things like that. So there are good trends at the same time you know, food processors will continue to process food. And it's very easy to blame um, business, but but a lot of, you know, they initially started using artificial sweeteners thinking this is a good thing. If people are worried about calories, let's give them that sweet tasting drink without the calories. So it's also just very complex. Um, and, and that's that's part of the challenge as well. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's there's no like, like one size fits all uh, panacea where it's like we can pinpoint what the problem is and, and um, create a solution. But I think uh, people, as you said earlier, like educating themselves, like reading your book, listening to conversations like this and um, being more intentional about what you eat and what you buy is, is part of the solution. The last thing that I wanted to talk to you about is the idea of actually changing your cravings. Um, and one way we can do that, and you talk about this in the book, is by substituting bitter foods um, for sweet tasting ones. And, and I wonder if there's other things we can do, but kind of beginning with that, how effective is that to, to reducing our cravings for things that are probably not so healthy for us? Well, I think it's, it's more using pleasure. You know, we, we've been so afraid of pleasure of deliciousness. Like I said, you know, if it tastes good, spit it out. That is not the cause. I would actually say that is the cure. So I visited a, um, a clinic in Germany uh, run by a woman who does absolutely fascinating research. She, she's a PhD scientist, um, you know, very well published. She deals with some of Germany's most challenging cases of disordered eating. And she's developed what she calls hedonic therapy. Um, and she showed me just, you know, how these different parts of our brain when it comes to what we call the reward system work. And the, and the reward system or pleasure isn't just one thing, it's two things. It's wanting, it's desire. We are attracted to the things we need. And then, like I said, there's this pleasure moment where we experience what we need. We get this moment of, of indulgence, of deliciousness. And she showed me how this, this more primitive um, faculty that snakes have, this, this desire system can get us into trouble. So she, it started with two potato chips. She mm. gave me two potato chips and she said, you can't eat these. You can nibble them, you can sniff them. Um, she said, rub them together, which I thought was weird. And I tried it and I was just absolutely gripped by such a powerful desire to eat these chips. It was painful. And then she said, throw them in the garbage. I'm like, are you nuts? I want to eat these. I threw them in the garbage. And then I got two brand new chips and they were like, you know, like, like new cars. They were just gleaming and perfect. And I so badly wanted to eat them. And what that showed me is that, you know, I'm not somebody who struggles with these problems, but it showed this, this, this wanting problem, this desire problem. That's what junk food is. It's not blissful. It's not um, a landmark moment of culinary indulgence that you'll tell your friends about. It gets us into this, reinforced system of just wanting to put food in your mouth. Um, well, I never ate those chips. I finally threw them away and I really came to understand the grip they can have over us. Then she, she ignited this other part of our brain, um, the liking part, the mm. pleasure indulgence part. And she gave me a little square of dark chocolate. And she said, just, you know, put this in your mouth and let the heat of your body slowly melt it. And I did. 
And instead of being jacked up and wanting to stuff my face, all of a sudden, everything slowed down. And I just let this, this chocolate take me on its journey. And it was amazing how much pleasure this tiny piece of chocolate could deliver and how different it was from the chips. These are both things people might abstractly say, I like chips, I like chocolate, but one, is, or, you know, and this is a more kind of complex European chocolate, but one is really about desire, about stuffing your face. And one is about true enjoyment that just in that moment of craving to put a very fine chocolate in their mouth and let it melt, the pleasure it give can, can kind of extinguish this volcano of craving. And I think that's telling us something so important because we're in a culture that, that's dictated by cravings for calories. We eat too much. What we need to do is be, be more indulgent and eat as Italians do and really savor the experience of food. Slow it down. Eat with the people you love. Don't mm. stuff your face as you're driving a car or, or watching TV. Um, you know, Italians eat fewer calories than we do, and it takes them twice as long to eat them. So that tells us their act of eating is a very different behavior than ours. And, and you alluded to the chemical, uh, sort of the neurochemical um, mechanisms underlying that. I spoke to uh, Daniel Lieberman. Um, he's a neuroscientist at George Washington University, and he wrote a book on dopamine and contrasted dopamine with here and now neurotransmitters like serotonin and oxytocin. And I think that goes to the whole wanting versus liking um, duality that, that you allude to, whereas, you know, wanting fast food, wanting a, a you know, a Big Mac or potato chips, that that's sort of a, a dopamine fueled uh, response, whereas liking something like like a dark chocolate or um, something more rich, that's actually uh, probably more salient and and also satiates you more. Like you say with potato chips, I, I have I have a, a stack of chips right here. I'm also guilty myself. If you have a bag of potato chips, you're probably not going to feel full. You're probably just going to want to have another bag of potato chips. Yeah, and well, and you no. feel kind of gross afterwards. You don't feel you don't walk away from that feeling you know light fleet on your you know light on your feet and 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 good. Um, I'd say one thing people can do is is kind of a way to understand this is if you put food in your mouth. And the first thought you have is of putting more of that food in your mouth. That's a pretty good indication that maybe, maybe stay away from that. Mm. But if you put something in your mouth and you are, you know, it, it brings you true pleasure. Those are the foods we should be focusing on. That, that's, uh, that's excellent advice. So by doing this, Mark, you think that people can reprogram their brains over time so as to no longer crave things like deep fried Oreos or, or French fries, um, fatty foods like that, and, and actually crave vegetables and uh, fresh produce and, and meats and, and, and things of that nature? Well, I think they'll crave both. You know, I'm not afraid of French fries. I'm a, you know, if French fries is all you eat and you're eating way too much of them, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. But I think when you look at what Italians eat, it's, it's not just, you know, red peppers and, and, uh, and lettuce. Uh, they, they have some very indulgent foods. But I, I spoke to one of Anya Hilbert's patients and she told me how her cravings had started to change, that she used to really love cake, but she started to understand that cake was kind of you know, whispering promises that it never delivered on, that it never truly delivered what she was hoping from it. And that mm. she learned new cravings, that she liked rutabaga, like she loved, grew to love rutabaga, for example. And she liked, um, one thing she grew to love was um, was fruit in, in uh, plain yogurt. She loved how the tartness of the plain yogurt, and then there'd be this burst of sweetness when she we bite into the fruit. So I think that's a good example of how we can adjust our palates and change our relationship to uh, uh, how we enjoy food. I also wonder, we talked earlier about semi-starvation neurosis. Uh, you can almost undergo a form of biohacking uh, potentially. And, and I, don't, I don't know if, if you agree with this, but 
take your body at a state when it's very vulnerable, like after intermittent fasting or something like that, when you're on a diet, you haven't eaten in six, seven hours. And the first thing you feed it instead of, um, you know, having a, a turkey sandwich or an, uh, an ice cream cone, the first thing you feed it is beans or chickpeas or kale as a way of, of sort of uh, conditioning your body to enjoy and to, and to crave those foods um, as opposed to, you know, foods that aren't good for you. I, I don't know if that's effective, just, just kind of thinking off the top of my head. Well, you know, sometimes you, you get little tidbits like that in culinary culture. Um, you know, it's interesting to see what Italians eat first. Um, what I'll often do, for example, is as I'm cooking, I'll, I'll like um, roast some, some uh, broccoli, mm -hmm. roast in the oven with garlic, um, squeeze a lemon, some Parmesan cheese. When you're at your hungriest, that's just absolutely delicious. And then you have, you know, you might have your steak and mashed potatoes or whatever. When it's on the plate next to the steak and mashed potatoes, sometimes it loses. But when you have it first, you eat lots of it. It's delicious. So, so sometimes it's also a way of understanding how your brain works. And yeah, I don't know if that's biohacking or just uh, being crafty. I love that. I love that. And I, I think that's one thing that listeners can do to maybe, you know, reconceptualize how they're eating, maybe snack on vegetables or something like that, as opposed to waiting for, for the main course. Yeah, Mark, we can talk about this stuff for hours. And, and, and to everyone listening, um, definitely check out Mark's book, The End of Craving, Recovering the Lost Wisdom of Eating Well. Uh, I mentioned him before uh, the podcast. Um, I, it, it was one of those books where when you're really enjoying, um, you know, reading about something you're interested in, you kind of take it slow, you stop, you tell your friends. I, I, I was sort of of, um, enthralled by some of the, the things we, we spoke about, like nutritive mismatch and artificial sweeteners. A lot of my friends are interested in this stuff. So we were um, sort of debating. Uh, they were asking me questions about impossible foods and what the application would be there. So check out Mark's book on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. I'm sure my listeners also want to know where they can go to follow your work and to learn more about what you do. Yeah. So uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, uh, I'm on Instagram. I have a website. I don't uh, you know, update it maybe as much as I should, but uh, at some point I'll get around to writing yet another book as well. And they'll, you know, if they're interested in this, they'll probably find my previous book, The Dorito Effect, interesting. I was just going to ask you about The Dorito Effect. I know we didn't, we didn't speak about it, but is that more um, tailored to uh, flavorings? And Yeah, and that, that's like really that? the story of, of flavor technology, how the flavor in food has changed. I can promise you I'm going to, I'm going to check that out because I love learning about this stuff. Mark Chatsker, this has been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. There you have it, guys. That was my conversation with uh, Mark Schatzker. Um, I don't even know where to begin because there were so many uh, incredible takeaways from our from our discussion. Um, I guess a good place to start is the whole notion of uh, set point that Mark was referring to, um, which is the idea that um, humans, no matter how much you eat or how much you diet, right, um, we have a preferred uh, setting, almost like a temperature, like like Mark referred to, and most people's weight never really falls too far below or rises too far above that set point, whether that's like 150 pounds or 200 pounds, whatever. Um, and that's why, as Mark said in the experiments done with prisoners and with college students, it was really difficult for um, those people to overeat over you know you know a long period of time um, and. How it just wasn't really sustainable, and um, and he also talks in the book, and I think he mentioned this briefly in our conversation. Uh, people who do have um, a couple, you know, days a month or, or uh, days a year where they, uh, you know, consume two, three, four times as many calories as they usually do, it doesn't really affect their weight all that much because the next day or the days following, um, they're probably not as hungry, so they consume less, and it all kind of balances out, which is why, as Mark said. Every diet works not for long. 
you mentioned like the six month period of time uh, where where your body sort of resp- restores um, back to its to its uh, to its homeostasis. So I thought that was that was a really interesting um, point. That's kind of going to make me reconsider like how I look at uh, dieting and and trying to gain and lose weight. And it really does re- reverse the conception that we have that um, I, I mentioned this in the episode. Like get left to our own devices, we would eat ourselves to death and. Um, Everyone says like, oh, if you know, if I didn't have to worry about how I looked, I would be 500 pounds. But the reality is like that that doesn't really happen, right? Like when your when your weight dips below a certain point, the brain goes into starvation mode and fights like hell to get it back up. And if it rises above uh, the set point, as Mark says, the brain also fights fights like hell to to bring it back down. So um, just just sort of reframing how we think about that, and then the whole idea of nutritive mismatch. Um, is is kind of remarkable in the Dana Small experiments that we spoke about. You know, you would expect that people would uh, prefer the taste of the soft drink, the sugar water, with the the highest number of calories. But um, essentially, what we like is when the sweetness, when the the um, the nu- nutritive content matches the amount of calories, and it all hums along like a fine tuning engine. And when there's a variance between what the tongue sensed and the stomach received, that's when you have this mismatch and the metabolic process shuts down. Uh, Mark says in the book, it's like the system just threw up his hands and didn't know what to do. And that's why people um, end up still feeling hungry and not feeling satiated after they consume something um, you know, that, that has this uh, nutritive mismatch. I just think about it in the context of artificial sweeteners, how, um, as I said in the episode, it seems like there's no sugar, there's no calories, there's um, you know no negative repercussions, but you're probably not feeling as satiated um, from you know drinking a, a vitamin water with artificial sweetener or a, a soda with artificial sweetener. Um, if anything, because there is that mismatch, you're probably driven to consume even more calories. So, just kind of putting that into words and explaining you know how that's contributing to the obesity crisis and of course the whole you know concept of, of vitamins um, and how uh, the average American gets like three or four times as much um, you know of, of thiamine for example as we need um, and this is you know one of the main differences between you know everyone wants to know everyone wants to postulate what makes um, the American way of eating so unhealthy and what's responsible for the obesity epidemic and I think there's something to the idea that uh, you know, we fortify, as Mark said, fortify our food. Um, there's so much discretionary fortification that these companies can legally add vitamins as they please to uh, refined flours and um, to cereal and, and to um, you know processed foods. And it makes the nutritional info panel seem healthier. But in actuality, we're just dumping you know these vitamin Bs, vitamin B and and niacin and, and riboflavin into our food. And as a result, it's actually having a deleterious impact. Um, whereas uh, an, an Italian consumes around a single milligram of uh, thiacin, um, excuse me, thiamine. Some of these, some of these names are confusing. The an American um, consumes three milligrams, so three times as much. Um, which, you know, and then Italians consume half as much niacin and riboflavin as Americans do today. And that's why, you know, Mark said the growth of of um, uh, Italians, uh, you know, that's why Italian growth is normal and American weight gain is 
optimal, just like the the weight gain in pigs. You know, we're eating, and this isn't a, a, a metaphor or anything. Like we're we're quite literally eating like pigs <laughs> in America. Um, so I thought I, I thought that was really interesting, and we didn't really get to dive too deep into calorie counting in um in the the episode. But Mark mentioned in the book the idea that like nowadays in 2022, and it's been like this I think for like a decade, you see the calories listed next to menu items. Um, you know, if you go to Applebee's or TGI Fridays, um, you know, you see like steak fajitas, chicken fajitas, 1500 calories. And you think you're so, holy shit, that's like a full day's worth of calories. Or if you go to Panera Bread, you see like, oh, uh, you know, soup is 350 calories, a sandwich is 500. Um, so you can kind of calculate how much you're eating and, and stay on top of it. And in some ways, you know, that's, that's a great thing, right? People are more, being more vigilant about their health, making sure that they, um, you know, keep their calorie, uh, keep their calories, calorie consumption at balance. So you, I guess you would think that knowing how many calories people eat lowers the amount that they willingly consume, right? Like if you see the steak fajitas on the menu for 1,500 calories or um, – I wonder what the most – I'm curious. I'm going to see. I wonder what the, the highest calorie – highest calorie menu items at restaurants. Just, just curious here. Um, here we go. 15 highest calorie restaurant meals. So the Buffalo Wild Wings cheese curd bacon burger, 1950 calories. Out uh, Outback prime rib, 2400 calories. So I mean <laughs> these menus actually put 2400 calories. I have cheeseburger omelet with pancakes. Jesus Christ. I'm going to guess, now I'm just going to do this price is right style. I'm going to guess 2300. 1990. Jeez. Um Smoke Shack double Smoke Shack burger. I actually get this from uh, uh um Shake Shack. It can't be can't be more than like twelve hundred. Twenty two forty. Jeez, with thirty two hundred milligrams of sodium. Pineapple upside down master blast shake. This has to be like eighteen hundred. Um, two thousand twenty. You know, if I'm gonna spend that those many calories, I think I'd rather do it on like savory, like like a you know a sandwich or steak. Dave and Buster's carnivore pizza dilla. Um, each of these slices is probably four hundred. This this has got to be like close to 3,000. Giant quesadilla stuffed with manchego and cheddar cheese. 1970 calories. McDonald's 40-piece McNuggets. I mean, I've been overshoot. I've been overshooting a lot. I'm going to undershoot this one. 1,600. 1,880. All right. Wendy's Dave's Triple. Uh, let's say 2,000. 1,090. That's not that. That's not as many as I expected. Dickie's Barbecue Pit. I don't know what that is. Three-meat plate. Um, sausage, pork ribs, brisket. Maybe like 2,300. 2,500. All right. I was close. Um, I'll do a couple more. <laughs> uh, Cheesecake Factory Pasta, Napoli, Lotena, 2,300. Oh, 2,310. Okay. Okay. I'm getting better at this. Cheesecake Factory Breakfast Burrito, 1,800. 2,730. That's got to be the highest highest one here. I don't know if there's been one that high. Um, and... We'll end with the Chili's Ultimate Smokehouse Combo. Baby back ribs, smoked brisket, smoked sausage, chicken breast, and fries. This has to be like 2500 It says at least 1270 depending on your combination of Anyway, so I, that was a, a, a digression. I guess all that's to say like, okay, so people people that see the Cheesecake breakfast, uh, cheesecake Factory Breakfast Reader for 2700 <laughs> it's hard to believe they willingly would um, – you know, would choose to consume that. So Mark writes in the book about research on whether or not calorie counters are effective in lowering the amount that people eat. 
And there was a study done at Yale where um, seeing the numbers on the menu had a positive effect on food choices. So people were, were choosing smaller portions and eating less. But it didn't last. So the calorie counters would go home and eat dinner in front of the TV. And by the end of the day, they, uh, half of them had consumed just as many calories as the group that never saw the calorie counts. So essentially, like they had a control group and they had a calorie counter group. And it looked like the calorie counters were choosing um, you know, smaller quantity items, but they just made up for the calories later. So it wasn't really effective. And then there was a law that was passed in New York City in 2008 requiring fast food restaurants to post calorie counters on their label – um, on their on their menus, um, and some people reported using the information to reduce the amount of calories. But five years after the law was passed, the average number of calories ordered had gone up instead of down. So basically, the research is inconclusive, which is why it's you know who knows if they're effective at lowering the amount that people eat. I will say, kind of a, as an addendum, um, and this is just a report that I found from um, Health Day reporter or Health Day News. So there was a study done in 2020 um, that essentially concluded that calorie labeling requirements for menus in American restaurant chains could save tens of thousands of lives and billions of dollars in healthcare and other costs. So the idea was um, – the idea is that researchers created a model to assess what would happen if the calorie labeling rule – led to moderate calorie reductions among 1 million Americans, and they claim that it would prevent close to 15,000 new, new cases of heart disease, including 1,600 deaths, and 21,522 cases of diabetes, um, and healthier menu choices could add uh, 8,749 um, years of life. Uh, and this would translate to $14 billion in health costs as well as up to $5 billion in lost productivity and, and other uh, costs. But it does seem like this model is assuming that the labeling rule led to moderate calorie reductions. But that's the whole correlation causation thing. We don't know if people are actually eating less because of the calorie counts or if it's just kind of a coincidence. Um and then there's the whole I, – I guess I guess then I'm, 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 as I'm going down the rabbit hole reading about this, there's a story on Bonapetit.com um, that you know some diners prefer to have calorie counts because it lets them track their calories for the reasons that we're discussing. Some diners don't want to see it because it, it makes them feel um, you know guilty and, and obsessively restricting and tracking their calorie intake. Um, kind of makes them spiral and they'd rather just eat in – ignorant bliss. Um, so it is, it is kind of divisive, but, uh, regardless, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily know how effective I, I don't think calorie counters are. Um, there are a couple more things I want to share from, uh, from Mark's book and, and hopefully you guys will indulge me just cause I, I love talking about this stuff. But, um, I really liked, there was an anecdote in the book and, and we didn't talk about it on, on, on the, in our interview, but he talked about how there's a village, uh, there's a group of people in northern Cameroon and Chad in Africa, the Masa people, and they consider fatness to be a sign of wealth and virility in young men. And so in order to achieve uh, fatness, every year a small number of the Masa embark on a period of incredible food intake. It's called the Guruwala. Guru I want to make sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. Guruwala. Pronunciation. I, all right, I, I don't even think I could find it. So the Guruwala, and the aim of the Guruwala is to achieve a bulging stomach, large buttocks, and a layer of fat spread over their frame. So to do this, the Masa people live by themselves for two months, 
often naked, eating every two hours from six in the morning until four the next morning. So every two hours for 22 hours. Um, and they usually eat porridge, 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 sorghum paste, milk, milk, porridge, porridge, sorghum loaf, and relish, porridge, porridge, and milk. Um, let me, what is in porridge, by the way? Porridge contents. So porridge, if you're curious, is uh, made up of ground, crushed, or chopped starchy plants, uh, typical in grain, milk, or water. So it's kind of like oatmeal. All right, so they're eating tons of oatmeal, milk, sorghum paste. Okay, now I got to – now I just got to see what that is. Must consume all the information. It looks like – I'm just going to do an image search because I have no idea. Sorghum paste – uh, I don't know actually. It looks like a buttery, grainy substance. And they do this over the course of the day, 22 hours. And one participant ate 17 pounds of food in a single day, so almost 17,000 calories. So wheelbarrow filled with 30 Big Macs basically. And by the end of this uh, Guru Walla, this, this participant gained 64 pounds. So he went from hypothetically um, you know, 120 pounds, you know, 130 pounds, 140 pounds, which is like – uh, average for five eight five nine man to uh, you know one ninety close to two hundred, and another guy who gained seventy five pounds couldn't get up without using a stick for help. So I guess why am I sharing with this with you? I I, I just found it really interesting that the mass of people um, look at fatness in this way, whereas in America, I mean, I think in most places in the world, obesity is is a cause of concern, uh, concern particularly because of the. Um, you know, the dangers to your health that it's associated with. Um, I also really enjoyed, he wrote about an experiment um, done by James Old in 1954, and it was all about finding the brain's pain center. Um, and remember in the episode with Anna Lemke, we talked about pain and pleasure. I think we returned to it in, was it the episode on time? There was another episode where we returned to the pain-pleasure duality. And so in this experiment, uh, aiming to find the pain, pain center, they inadvertently discovered the pain's pleasure center. So this guy Olds created levers that the rodents could could use to push themselves and administer the zaps um, while their experimenter kind of measured how frequently they they pushed the the lever and, and administered the zaps. And this was you know administering the, the zaps in order to basically pleasure themselves, um, a form of like rat masturbation. So the first rat. Uh, would zap itself again and again, and then it kind of realized over time in these experiments done by by old that it could self stimulate by pushing the the button. And after thirty minutes, the experiment had to turn off the the current because the rat just stood there, basically pressing the le- uh, the lever uh, until it fell asleep. And there was one rat that that Mark writes about in the book that self stimulated more than eight hundred fifty thousand times over a period of of twenty one days. Um, whether you know the choice was. Uh, eat food or push the pleasure lever, they pick the pleasure lever. Sleep, sex, water, the rat always chose the lever and um, and would kind of zap itself until it uh, collapsed or sometimes died, right? They would self-stimulate to death. And these experiments were repeated, uh, Mark writes, with other animals like rabbits, goldfish, pigeons, dogs, cats, chickens. Um, there was a monkey that pressed the lever uh, three times a second, 16 hours a day for years, so three times a second, 16 hours a day. Let's see. Three times a second is 180 times a minute is 11,000 times an hour is 259,000 times a day, 16 hours 
day. Oh, my math was wrong. Divided by 24. 16 hours a day. So one... Is that right? 16 hours a day. So that's 173,000 times a day um, for years. Wow. So one evening, a dolphin that was inadvertently left in a pool with its wires and switches, uh, Mark writes, delighted himself to death after an all-night orgy of pleasure. So really remarkable how not just in humans, um, but you see in, in all animals the you know the drive towards um, – towards pleasure and stimulation. And that does extend to our cravings. We talked a lot about how with junk food, you don't really feel full when you eat junk food. It's more like it's just just um, an unconscious habitual reaction, which is why I really, I really appreciated that Mark had that comment about like, if you put something in your mouth and your immediate urge is to put something else in your mouth, um, then you know, maybe, maybe, you're, <laughs> maybe you're not eating the right things, right? Um, kind of slowing down the eating process. And if you've ever wondered why we crave the things we do, you know, the fat, the meat, um, grains, and, and sugar and fruit, there's an interesting evolutionary reason for it. This is another thing that uh, we didn't have time to get into in the episode, but really, you know, really liked learning about it. And this is kind of the, the expensive tissue hypothesis, the expensive tissue hypothesis. And I had never heard about this prior to reading the book. But the idea is that uh, millions of years ago, our ancestors had brains about a third the size of um, our brains today. And having a small brain meant that our ancestors could subsist on a diet of fibrous plants and not many calories. And they spent a lot of time foraging and um, eating. And, and as a result, slow-moving digestion took place uh, you know, and, and enabled them to extract nutrients from that kind of diet. But as humans evolved um, over millions of years into you know the people that exist today, our brains got bigger and our guts got smaller and faster. So it wasn't necessarily efficient anymore for us to subsist on this low-calorie fibrous plant diet. So eventually we had to upgrade to food that packed a bigger caloric punch. So this meant fatty meat, nuts, seeds, grains, sweet food. Um, and eventually – uh, populations of humans evolve the ability to digest milk into adult into adulthood, um, which which gives us a way of consuming one of the few sources of fat blended with carbs found in nature. So I so I don't think I fall into that group because I'm I'm lactose intolerant. Uh, it's interesting. So, so Mark says that uh, only four populations of humans evolved that ability: one in Europe, two in Africa, and one in the Arabian Peninsula. So um, it sounds like I'm not alone in being lactose intolerant. But in eating this calorie rich diet. Uh, Mark talks about how this this enabled us with more time to do other things, right? Instead of needlessly chewing and going to obtain food, we could fashion tools and erect structures and uh, play games and, and eventually invent cooking, uh, which made our food easier to, to digest. And so uh, calories eventually made um, humanity possible by, by uh, releasing us from a food-gripped existence. So instead of um, having to hunt and gather food um, and constantly be thinking about where our next meal is going to come from. We had time to do brainy things. And I think in a lot of ways, the invention of uh, agriculture and cooking uh, and you know um, the beginning of, of sedentary lifestyles, that, that, allow, you know, that allowed us to focus on intellectual endeavors, on invention, on innovation. Uh, things like that. So, you know, if you're a history anthropology nerd like me, like 
this kind of thing um, will interest you. If you're just inter- if you're just into like the science and the nutrition, so, uh, maybe maybe that was kind of boring. But I but I really like that part of the book as well. So a couple more things, and then I'm going to wrap up because this episode is already probably going to turn out like over two hours. Um, I'm thinking the title of the episode will probably be like "WTF is in our food," because that to me is is what all of this has left me with. Um, you know, in the episode. Uh, Mark talks about how a lot of the food labeling companies or rather the the manufacturers, the food processors um, will disguise things for for other things. He talked about how a lot of the the fat replacers um, are, you know, put in like milk substitute or uh, whey protein and you kind of think it comes from a farm, but in actuality, it's it's actually like a chemical that's created in a lab. And he gives more examples of this in the book. He says that the white whipped topping at Tim Hortons, uh, the Canadian donut chain. So he, uh, uh, I think Mark is from Canada, if you couldn't tell by his accent in the, in the conversation. So uh, Tim Hortons, of course, that's a, a very on point reference. Um, so the white whipped topping at Tim Hortons contains hyd- hyd- hydrogenated vegetable oil, dextrose, sodium caseinate, modified cellulose, polysorbate 60, microcrystalline cellulose, natural flavor, soy protein concentrate, polyglycerol esters of fatty acids, and xanth gum, but no actual cream. So a lot of the, you know, it's always perplexing how um, when you see like dairy products or allegedly dairy products that you would think would need to be refrigerated and they're in the center aisles at CVS or the the supermarket because they don't actually contain dairy products and they don't need to be refrigerated. Uh, that's the case for a lot of the creamers <laughs> that I'm, I'm guilty of, um, of, of consuming religiously. He also talks about how Oikos triple zero blended Greek yogurt tastes creamy, sweet, and fruity, but contains no fat, no added sugar, and no fruit. Um, Halo top blueberry crumble ice cream stimulates sweet receptors with stevia and erythritol, a sugar alcohol, um, aroma receptors with natural flavors and mimics the sensation of fat with milk protein concentrate, whey protein concentrate, organic carob gum, acacia gum, can't even pronounce half this stuff, and organic guar gum. And, you know, he says all this to to reinforce the point of, like, uncertainty, how you taste a food, you know, going back to the uh, experiments with um, the the different calorie content, sugar water of uh, Dana Small, you taste the food and you're not really sure, you know, if it's 75 calories, you taste 75 calories, that's a match. But if it's 100, if it's 150, you have that mismatch, there's uncertainty. So you're going to keep eating, keep consuming um, because you're not really sure what to expect. And so I think those, those examples are really illustrative of that point. I want to reiterate, and I've said it, Mark said it, you've heard it um, everywhere, but this is really an American problem because other countries, you know, Mark says wealthy, advanced, science-forward countries – Denmark, Finland, I mean, those guys are on top of everything. Look at their education systems. France, Japan, Korea, Spain, Sweden, Italy, of course, do not fortify their flour with vitamins. Um, and, you know, they don't have the, the glaring obesity that we have. And you see this beginning in children. You know, European children eat olives, uh, pate, cheeses, and our children eat chicken nuggets that come in a package and are made with rib meat. Uh, microwave pizza that doesn't actually contain real cheese or real dairy. You know, they've developed fine, healthy palates with nutritive match. Um, where, whereas we eat, as I said earlier, as Mark said, we eat like pigs in a barn and we get fat like pigs in a barn. And the brain circuitry that 
is responsible for pleasure and enjoyment that we've talked about is shriveled like a raisin. And to me, the most emblematic example of this is is Soylent. I don't know if any of you guys have, have had Soylent before. One of my um, good friends who listens to the podcast, he went through like a Soylent phase where um, I don't know if it was for diet reasons or he just didn't have time to eat. He was consuming those Soylent drinks uh, I think three times a day, um, every day for like a month or something. And Soylent, Soylent is essentially like a meal replacement. If you haven't heard of it, it comes in in a in a little beverage container, and it basically has like everything that you need um, to survive. Without if you if you didn't eat or drink, I don't know if you if you can get by without water. Let's see, do you need water with Soylent? I feel like you still need water. Yeah. Okay. You still need you still need you still need water with Soylent, but. If you were like stranded on a deserted island and you only had water, fresh water and Soylent, you could still survive because the beverage contains, like I said, everything you need. Um, Mark says in the book, soy protein isolate, maltodextrin, sunflower oil, artificial flavors, isomaltose, corn fiber, soy lectin, and sucralose. So everything everything you need in you know Soylent and you have five drinks a day and you're at 2,000 calories. And my friend did this for a month. He did this for – Let's see, five, uh, a lot of math in this episode. Five drinks a day, 35 times, um, 35 drinks a week times four, uh, 140 uh, Soylents for a month. And he just said he felt he felt lethargic and, and he didn't feel like he was healthy. He felt kind of sick and emaciated. And the reason is, um, I think the Soylent, you know, I think the Soylent example is uh, the embodiment of, exactly what we're talking about of what Mark writes is the we know better approach to eating that we can you know reverse engineer instead of going through nature instead of eating fruits and vegetables and grains um, we're going to engineer them in laboratories to uh, basically insert the vitamins and the nutrients that we need into our food through you know food processing and eventually the future we're heading towards in America is soylent you know instead of uh, meals like they have in Italy where, you know, as Mark says, they, they put a gob of butter on the pan and they make uh, fatty uh, ribeye steak and uh, asparagus and, and delicious broccoli and, and bread, you know, baked in an oven. Instead of that future in America, we're just all going to be sitting sitting at home having our five Soylent shakes a week. And yeah, it's, it's, it's convenient, but not only is it not healthy, but it's not tasty you know, and and I think part of the solution here is enjoying food again. Is not, and uh, I'm I'm going to steal this from Mark because he said in the episode, but I think it's really salient. Bears repeating, you know, it's not having a fast food burger while you drive, or um, you know, ordering takeout Chinese food and eating it in front of the TV. <clears throat> it's enjoying meals at home with your family. You know, family dinners or eating out on the weekends with your friends and eating slowly. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like it's an American phenomenon that people wolf down their food in like three or four bites. Um, I'm someone, because I talk so much, unsurprisingly, it takes me a long time to eat my meals. Um, sometimes like, you know, I uh, if I'm sitting at a restaurant with like four or five people, I'm always the last one to finish because I'll take a couple bites. I'll have some water, drink a lot of water, and then um, – you know, we'll have a good conversation going. Mealtime is, is fun. It's it's a part of connection. And I think that, that that kind of the antithesis of that is, to, is so, soylent beverages and um, the path that we're going down. So so if you get nothing else from this episode, um, try to slow down when you're eating. 
appreciate the food. If you have food in your mouth, like Mars said, if you have food in your mouth and you're already thinking about putting more food in your mouth, that's probably not a good idea. Try like the um, the mindfulness tasting exercise, which I think I mentioned in an episode on mindfulness, like mindful eating. But try like putting some you know chocolate on your tongue and, and feeling it melt, or you know savoring a, a clementine in your mouth. There, there's something you know having like a nice bite of, of meat and really savoring the flavors, um, things like that. I think. I think are, are really helpful, but I'm going to stop talking because I actually have to eat. Uh, if you haven't been eating while you're listening to this episode, this probably made you um, really, really hungry. So I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up and eat lunch, but do want to thank Mark Schatzker for coming on um, to the episode and uh, definitely check out his book. I'm also going to look into reading, uh, like I said in the episode, the Dorito effect, where he talks about uh, the, Dorito, the Dorito effect the surprising new truth about food and flavor. Um, Cause I really enjoy Doritos and something tells me that if I, if I read this book, I probably won't, <laughs> won't be eating any of those anymore. Uh, I wonder if it covers, I mean, I wonder if it covers genetically modified foods because we've talked so much cause we've covered so much in the nutrition landscape. It's hard to imagine that there are things that we didn't talk about in this episode, but I think um, GMOs is one thing that we didn't talk about and uh impossible foods meatless meat um so maybe maybe at some point we could have mark on again to extend this conversation into those areas so next week is a very special episode i'm going to be joined by some well-known personalities i'm not going to give anything else away because i want you guys to listen there'll there will also be a video on youtube so if you enjoyed the video episode i did with uh pile kadakia um, a couple months back, you'll really, you'll really like this one. All right. All right. I'm wrapping up. Um, <laughs> so that's coming up next week on nervous habits. Thanks so much for listening. This has been another episode of nervous Habits podcast. You can follow the pod on Instagram at nervous Habits podcast on Twitter at nervous Habits underscore search for full episodes on clips on YouTube, search nervous Habits podcast and write to the pod at nervous Habits podcast at gmail.com. And remember next time you reach for a Coke zero, think twice because that zero calorie, zero sugar label might be deceiving. Take care and stay nervous.